0: Amen. You guys may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. And as we continue, we wrapped up chapter 8 last week, and we're moving into chapter 9. I do want to make a note as we begin. You are able to give online with this QR code. You can text this number to give. You can give as you exit. You know the spiel. You know how to give. Now, as we begin, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And I've titled today's sermon, God's Grace in Salvation. This is a very well-known story from the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the conversion of Paul. And so as we look at this, we're seeing God's grace and salvation be put on full display in this man who was a persecutor of the church, becoming a faithful believer, a faithful follower of Jesus. This is important for us as we look at this, and we want to be careful that we get the main idea of this passage, of this sermon, in our minds. The main idea of this is ultimately God's grace in salvation. You see, as we look at this, this is not Paul making a choice to follow Jesus. This is Jesus kicking him off his donkey so that he might see, hear, and respond to the glory of his name. When we study the scriptures, we recognize a reality in salvation. That though we respond to the free gift of grace that God provides to us, God is the one who makes the first move. Jesus is the one who first makes the move and says, Here it is. Here is my grace, my goodness, my redemptive power here in front of you. And then we have to respond. And as we look at this passage, we're going to ultimately see God's grace and salvation on full display through the life of Paul. And so as we look at this, I want to focus in on this concept. And there are two, I've titled them essentially two points, but they're one point together. Each section of the passage focuses on two separate areas. You see, our first point is the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus. You'll understand why I've separated this way as we get into the text Begin with verse one. Let's look at chapter nine, verse one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Saul, said, Who are you, Lord? And he, this voice, said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. You see, we see the call of Jesus on full display here. As we begin, we encounter Saul once more here in the first few verses. We've seen him earlier in the book of Acts, beginning with the persecution of Stephen. We see that Saul was readily available and involved in that. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he was a leading persecutor. He was someone who was not only actively persecuting the church, but he was reveling in it. He was taking this to lead him to new power, new heights, new authority. And he appears here still persecuting the church and is pursuing them out of Jerusalem into greater Israel. Not content, just scatter them from the holy city. He says we must follow them wherever they go. That's why we're seeing this verse where he asks the high priest to get permission to go to Damascus to retrieve any Christians he might find. Now there are several things we need to consider here as we look at these verses. These just few verses as we start. One, we see that Saul is still an enemy of Christianity. There's nothing here in this passage that will suggest a softening of his views on the church. He's not becoming more okay with it. He is absolutely against Jesus and the church. He's not wavering in any way. He is still an enemy of Jesus. This is important for us to consider, I believe, because... It makes his conversion from here to following Jesus that much more miraculous. That an enemy, that a man in rebellion against God would become his friend is an incredible thought, isn't it? That he would go from a persecutor of the church to being persecuted for the church. I think this is something that should give us hope here as we look at this section of Scripture. You see, I think what's illustrating is that no person, no matter where they've gone or what they've done, is too far gone to receive the grace of Christ. You see, no one is too far from the Lord, whether it's from their actions or physical distance, to receive the grace of Christ. No matter where you might go, you can encounter the gospel of Jesus. And no matter what you have done, you can receive forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus. And I think this is hope, perhaps, for you here as you're meditating on your own life. Perhaps you see that there are things that you might very well need forgiveness for. Perhaps you say you've gone too far and there's no hope for you yet. This very verse, this very section of Scripture we look at, would show that if indeed anyone was hopeless, it would be Paul, who's an enemy of the church, killing Christians. Yet, we end this story with him leaving Damascus as a follower of Christ, who goes on to plant many churches, who goes on to write two-thirds of the New Testament If indeed Paul is not too far from the grace of God to receive salvation, who are you to be too far from the grace of God? I think this is also an encouragement for those of us who are steadfastly interceding on someone's behalf for salvation. Perhaps as I look around the room, I recognize that there are people in your life that you've been praying for for years. Perhaps there are people in your life that you have been proclaiming the gospel to for years and they have still not responded to Christ. You see, I think this gives us hope because what it shows us here is that no matter where they are, until they draw their last breath, they are not too far from the grace of God. Because indeed, if anyone is too far from the grace of God, if there's no hope for someone to be saved, it would be Paul. Paul. Yet, God in his goodness and his grace saves the chief of sinners, as Paul describes himself. You see, I believe we have hope from this passage. Now, as we look at this, we see that he's referred to as Saul. And we recognize that later on he's referred to as Paul. And there's a little confusion about what's happening there. And I felt it necessary to address it just so that we can... Be good biblical scholars as we're studying this. Some would suggest as we look at this that Saul had his name changed to Paul by Jesus during this encounter. And that's an idea that some people get from the Old Testament as God is very commonly changing the names of people in the Old Testament, right? When he makes a covenant with people, their names are changed. So we see Abram go to Abraham, right? I mean, that's a long list we can find in the Old Testament of this happening. Yet, in this section of Scripture, and indeed, throughout the entire New Testament, we see no evidence that Paul had his name changed. We see zero evidence that there was a name change being put on display here. You see, we recognize as we study the Scriptures and we know about Paul's history because you write two-thirds of the New Testament, we learn a little bit about who you are. Saul, who's also known as Paul, is from Tarshish. This is a Greek city with a very strong Hebrew population. We know Saul is indeed a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin. He tells us that in Romans 11. But we also know from his passages, his writing, that he's Greek educated. That means he's educated within Greek rhetoric. Now, why is that important? Well, what this means is that he already had a Greek name, Paul, that he was commonly using. Now, why is this important? Why is he called Saul here and throughout rest of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament is he called Paul? Well, I think we have to understand that Luke's trying to make a theological point here as he's using the word Saul. By the time Luke is writing this, everyone knows of Paul. They know the things he's done. They're reading his letters. They've heard of the churches he's planted. They've heard of all the grace that he's done. Yet in this... I believe Luke is using Saul right now to show this focus, this transition from the church being just a Jewish body to being one that is multicultural, that is blending in these Gentiles, these Greeks, these other cultures that are being brought into the body. He transitions to using Paul throughout most of the rest of the book of Acts to display this call to reach Gentiles, you see, Luke's not just casually writing this and trying to make confusion happen. Remember, we study the Bible. We can not understand this. But Luke is trying to make a theological point. He's trying to show the expansion of the gospel going from just a Hebrew faith to one that is a faith for all men, women, and children that walk this earth. Now, regardless of what you want to call him, Saul, Paul, or hey, you, whatever works. But as we're looking at this, we see that Jesus has plans for Saul here, right? Saul's continuing to Damascus in this story. And in the middle of the day, there's this bright light from heaven shining down upon him and this caravan. We have Jesus speak to him in a very formal way. He uses this usage of the double name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? and he's drawing his attention. Now if it's not enough that he's got this blinding light in front of him and now he's using his formal language of hey you pay attention. Now like anyone might feel when they lose their vision, they can't see. Saul doesn't recognize this voice and he responds, I think rather politely, who who are you, lord? Now, we we see here that he uses Lord. And some say that this is a a connotation of perhaps something equivalent to sir. You know, hey, sir, who are you, right? Let me be polite. But I think as we look at this context that Saul understands he's encountering something heavenly. He says, who are you, Lord? Recognize that Saul is encountering something that is beyond him. He knows that something from God has descended Now, this moment comes to a climax here when this verse proclaims to him in verse 5 I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine being Saul in that moment? Can you imagine having been knocked off your horse, your donkey, whatever it was you're riding, with this blinding light striking the ground and this voice shouting to you in the midst of the silence? And you say, who are you, Lord, knowing that this is something heavenly that you've encountered? And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I don't know what was going through Paul's mind at that time. There are a few things I could speculate on. I think the the first and perhaps most obvious to us is that he would have perhaps thought Christianity Is indeed the way. Because this Jesus that I've been persecuting these Christians over is alive. You see, he's been persecuting Christians for what he believes is a lie that Jesus rose from the dead. Because Christians have been proclaiming for 2,000 years, the Messiah has risen. And Saul, as a good Hebrew believer, is saying, no, 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 the Messiah has yet to come. That Jesus could not have been the Messiah. And in this moment, he recognizes that he is completely and totally wrong. Not only do we see here later on in the passage, verse 17, we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, that Paul actually here, he sees Jesus in the midst of this blinding light. That when Jesus says, I am Jesus, that his vision, he sees him. It clears enough for him to see Jesus in his heavenly glory. So he's looking full on the face of Jesus. His wonderful face. And what does he encounter? Recognition of his sin and shame. You see, he's stunned. And at some point, he just drops to the ground. And he's laying face down is what the Greek gives us a context of in verse 6. And Jesus begins to speak to him again. He says, but rise And enter the city, and you will be told what to do when you are there. As if that's not enough, the guys around him are stunned. They've heard this voice, but they've seen nothing. They've got no idea what happened, but they know that something heavenly, something otherworldly has occurred. So Saul gets up, and he's blind, and he needs to be guided like a small child holding their hand into the city of Damascus. And we see this great enemy of Jesus who was going to Damascus to wreak havoc on the church has now been declawed and defamed. He's gone from a position of great power to being powerless before anyone now. That even my daughter could push him over right now. Blind and defenseless. And what we are encountering here is what some authors would term the great midnight of the soul. You see, this is the great midnight of the soul, and what we see as the turning point in the life of Saul. You see, here we see the trajectory of his entire life change. He goes from being an enemy of Jesus to recognizing his sin and his shame. He's not professed Christ as Savior yet, but He's come face to face with his sinful nature. I believe this moment was incredibly impactful on the life of Paul, not just because he professed Christ shortly after this, but throughout his writings, you see such an emphasis on Paul recognizing the nature of sin, of his own awareness of who he is in light of a holy savior. So many times as Paul writes about sin, he's writing about the corrupt nature of humans. And I believe that this moment was so incredibly impactful not just for Paul's life and for how he came to faith but ultimately because he understood with the full vision of Jesus standing before him the width and depth of sinful nature, of sinful humanity. You know this moment that Saul is in the middle of this midnight of the soul of resting and wrestling and with the darkness. Perhaps we can empathize with that as we see this. Maybe we've experienced those lonely times of wrestling with our sin and wrestling with our conscience, wondering, did I make the right call? Did I do the right thing? Is this what life is about? Is this the meaning of, have I found what I'm looking for? Is this where I'm supposed to go? And we recognize in those times, just like Paul writes in Romans seven eighteen, that nothing good lives in me. We rest in that and we recognize that we are sinful creatures who are in need of a savior. Even in the middle of the darkness, the beautiful light of Christ does not leave us dwelling there in our lostness and in the dark. You see, he pursues us and he calls us to himself. He seeks sinners out, always making the first move to reach people far from him. It's why we see verses like, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, It's why when you read John 3.16, you can't stop at John 3.16. You've got to read John 3.17. Why? For the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. This is the gospel message. This is the hope that we have in the midst of the darkness. Now we see Saul's story continue in the following verses. My hope and prayer is that what you'll see is a continuation of your own story as well, that you're not still trapped in that darkness waiting for someone to rescue you. You see, in this second section, we see that this is a call to forgiveness. If you cumulatively take our points here, the call of Jesus is a call to forgiveness. We see that being put on full display here Not only through the forgiveness he offers to Saul, but through the forgiveness that other Christians will offer to Saul. So here in verse 10, we enter into a few verses where we'll see a man named Ananias. Verse 10 reads, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. He has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. We continue our story here with a disciple of Christ named Ananias. We don't really know anything about him beyond his appearance here, but we see the Lord begin speaking to him in verse 10. And he responds, here I am, Lord. What do you want? What can I do? And he's told to go to this specific home and place his hands on this man to heal him. And I would imagine that as the Lord starts to speak, it sounds pretty good to Ananias. So yeah, go to this house on Straight Street. Yep, it's the house of Judas. Yeah, I got that. And ask for Saul and heal him. And what? Wait a minute. Is is this the Saul we're talking about? You see, he recognizes the name Saul and he makes a connection to this great persecutor of the church. And to be very honest, Ananias is probably thinking like the rest of us. And we're asking this question of, Lord, have you lost your mind? Lord, have you lost what is left of your mind? Because I need to help you find it. Because this is, this is crazy. Why would I go help Saul? This would really be like asking Peter Rabbit to help Mr. McGregor, right? Like, it doesn't work that way. You don't do that. Yet, Ananias is here looking up at the ceiling Do you have any better ideas than this? Because this is a bad one, boss. Like this is not something we should do. And in the midst of his complaints, in the midst of his frustration, in the midst of his questioning before God, the Lord is persistent. And he commands Ananias to go yet again. You see his words here in verses 15 and 16. He says, Saul has been chosen has been chosen by God to be an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. John Hill, a pastor and commentator, writes on this verse that the one who was once the church's most vehement persecutor would now be the one who would willingly accept persecution for the sake of the name of Jesus. You see, this is a central portion of the passage today. An enemy has been redeemed that is now being sent out as an ambassador of Christ. What a miraculous thing to see. Now, perhaps this is compelling to Ananias because he gets up and he goes to the house that Saul's in in verses 17 through 19. And I find it so significant that he begins what is recorded here with saying, brother Saul brother saw. I want to be clear that this isn't just a casual phrase because as we recognize studying the scriptures, Luke as he's writing this is writing what happened but he's also writing things for a specific focus. He wants us to see some things. We say Ananias do something that I think is more miraculous than even the miracle that comes after this. You see Ananias offers forgiveness. You see when he says Brother Saul, he's treating him as a fellow disciple, one who has been made new. He's offering forgiveness and reconciliation between two men, when the world would justify his hostility and fear. The world would tell him, "You have a right to hold a grudge, and Ananias, you have right to fear this man because he is evil." There is no hope. He will kill you as quickly as he can. You need to hold a grudge. You need to protect yourself and watch out for him. Yet Ananias calls him brother. You see, what we have on display here is not just the free gift of grace, of salvation, of forgiveness that comes from Jesus to a man, but that is fully on display We also see how reconciling ourselves with God allows us to be reconciled with our fellow man. That the only way we're going to see unity be put on display in this world is first if we reconcile ourselves with God himself. And in this moment, we see two men, Ananias and Saul, be reconciled not by finding commonality, Not by the color of their skin, not because of the job they have, not because of where they come from, not because of anything they share in common, but for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And in fact, if they had not experienced that redeeming work of Jesus Christ, there would be no reconciliation between them. And so Ananias says, Brother Saul, offering forgiveness... I have come to see you healed. I have been sent so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he lays his hands on him as the Lord told him to do. And suddenly Saul can see again. Saul then, it seems, immediately goes and is baptized in obedience to the Lord. And the book of Acts connects this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit with conversion and baptism. And we recognize fully that the Spirit of God dwells in the life of a believer when they trust in Jesus. Also known as when you experience a conversion, when you trust in Jesus, repent of your sin, that salvation moment, that is when the Spirit dwells inside of you. And the book of Acts seems to connect this idea of baptism occurring very quickly after conversion, which is why they're usually linked together here. And what they're pointing out is this idea of being filled by the Holy Spirit comes not because someone laid hands on you, not because of baptism, but because you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That when you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are filled with the Spirit and you have the ability to choose to not sin. You have the ability to read the Scriptures and understand them. You have the ability to go before the Lord and speak to Him. Now this passage ends with the focus on Saul's conversion being complete here. Once he was an enemy, now he is a friend. He's been fully redeemed by Jesus to become a crucial part of his plan to reach the world. We see that Saul goes on to plant many churches across the known world. He takes several missionary journeys to plant churches. That what he's trying to do is see people who are far from God reached with the gospel of Jesus. That's why so much of our effort is spent on missions and giving to church plants and missionaries. Because the greatest, quickest, easiest way to reach people who are far from God is to plant a church. Statistically, in Charleston, we need, on average, for every church we have, we need a dozen more churches to just reach the current population today in Charleston. So for every church you see on the street, we need a dozen more churches just like them to reach the current population of Charleston. But Charleston's still growing, right? Because 40 people a day move to Charleston. This is why we're so passionate about planting churches here. Because we know that to reach every man, woman, and child, we need every man, woman, and child who loves Jesus on mission. And so simply put, we want to follow in the model of Paul and Yes, we believe in doing mission work on our own as Paul did, and that's what we tried to own as individual believers, just like Paul did. But we also want to plant churches just like Paul did so that people who are far from God might encounter the saving work of Jesus Christ. But Saul, who we call Paul most commonly, not only goes and plants many churches on several missionary journeys, but He writes about two-thirds of the New Testament that we see. As you flip through the New Testament, the most common author is Paul. This man who's written so much of our holy scriptures. He's given us so much to draw from. Who could have known the impact that he would have had when he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road? Who could have known the impact that he would have had? In the midst of that, we have a beautiful example to look at. You see, when we look at the life of Paul, we see the story of Jesus on full display. That he was a wretched sinner trapped in his sin, who did the vilest of deeds, but was able to be redeemed by the free gift of grace that comes from Jesus You see, the testimony that is on full display there is that that God is not going to be held back by your sin or shame, that he can redeem you even when you're in active rebellion against him. And so I simply ask this question for you. What is your testimony today? Is your story that you're in active rebellion against God and you're still running from him? Maybe you're just trapped in your shame and you think that there's no God who would want you an unworthy, sinful creature. You've done too much. You're too far gone that you cannot be saved. Maybe you're just comfortable in your sin and you think things are okay. What am I in need of saving from? Because things are just fine here. Maybe you're here And you're recognizing that perhaps you walk with God, but you haven't walked consistently with him. You're straying away in your walk. He's not the one moving from the path. You are. Or maybe you're here and you recognize, just like Paul, that you're a wretched sinner in need of a savior. And you confess and cry out that you know that there is no good in you but what God has put in there. There is no good to be found in you, but what God has placed in you. Wherever you are, whatever your story, whatever your testimony might be in this time, there is hope. There is grace to be found. There is forgiveness that is offered through the shed blood of Jesus. My hope and my prayer today is that just as Saul encountered the name of Jesus and was never the same, that you would encounter the name of Jesus today and forever be changed. Here in the next few minutes, we'll have some time of silent prayer for you to cry out to God and simply have this conversation to look at him, to cry out to him and say, God, here I am. What will you do with me? My prayer is that you would cry out to him seeking forgiveness. But we'll have time for you to do that individually. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll close our time by praying over you and then our worship team will lead us in worship for one final song as we celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of our resurrected Savior. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you in different places in need of different things from you, Lord. But no matter the things that we're wrestling with on this earth, the true need of every man, woman, child here is not for you to move in some physical way on this earth. It is not for you to give us the things that we desire. It is not for you to give us a pat on the head, whatever it may be that we want right now, Lord but what we truly need is your grace and mercy. What we truly need is forgiveness for our sin and shame. And so, Lord, I pray, I ask very clearly that you would convict your people, convict us of our sin. Show us where we have fallen short. Show us the need of a savior in our lives. Then, Lord, you would do something miraculous in our own hearts, just like you've done for Paul, That you stopped him in his tracks so that he might see the error of his ways and that he would follow after you, Lord. Father, I pray that that is what happens for us today. That we would be stopped in our tracks and we could see the weight of our sin and the result of it, which has led us into death, rebellion, and ultimately will carry us to hell. But in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that story, there is a beautiful light that is shining. This light of the world whose name is Jesus. Father, it is through Jesus receiving forgiveness for our sins, by confessing our sins before him, by crying out to him for salvation, that we can receive this gift of grace. That we can have our sin and shame wiped away That it will be blotted out, will be made white as snow, as pure as can be. But only through praying to you, Father. Crying out to you for the salvation that Jesus provided to us. So Lord, I pray that for everyone here, they would cry to you, Father. They would look to you for redemption, for salvation. Lord, we recognize that there is no need to improve ourselves. We don't have to get things straight to come to you, Father. We simply come to you as we are, and we proclaim that we are filthy sinners in need of a Savior. And Lord, as we study the Scriptures, we know there is one prayer that you have told us that you will always answer, and that is the prayer of people crying out for redemption. So Father, hear our prayers today and answer your people today, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.